And now I'd like to invite you to rise for the reading of the sermon text this morning, which is found in Isaiah chapter 2. We're going to take a, a little break from our study of the Gospel of Mark uh, for this Advent season. I'm going to be doing an Advent mini-series, and we start uh, the Advent series with a passage from the book of the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. So friends, let us hear God's holy word. The word which Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. Now it will come about that in the last days, the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains and will be raised above the hills and all the nations will stream to it. And many peoples will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us concerning his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For the law will go forth from Zion, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem, and he will judge between the nations, and will render decisions for many peoples, and they will hammer their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation. And never again will they learn war. Come, house of Jacob, and let us walk in the light of the Lord. Dear friends, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Let's ask the Lord's blessing upon the preaching of his word. Our Lord and Father in heaven, what a privilege it is to hear from the creator of the universe, to have the gift of revelation from you. We thank you, God, that you have given us your word. It is indeed a lamp unto our feet, a light unto our path, a guide unto our way. We ask that by your spirit you would now instruct us from the word. We pray that you would give us open minds and open hearts to behold wondrous things from your word. And we do ask that you would grant unto me, your unworthy servant, the grace to declare your word with clarity and power and with the assistance of your Holy Spirit for the glory of your name, the edification of your saints, and the salvation of the lost. In Jesus' name we pray, and all of God's people said, Amen. Amen. You may be seated. The title of my sermon this Lord's Day morning is, In the Last Days. And there's a number of key words you can be listening for today. As you'll notice in your sermon outline, um, Advent, Redemptive History, Last Days, Mountain Temple, Messiah, Peace and Promises. And children, if you're looking for some particular words to keep track of in my sermon, I'd recommend the words Mountain, Peace and Promises. Well, dear friends, this time of year is a season in the traditional church calendar that is known as the season of Advent. Now, what does the word Advent mean? Children, what do you think the word Advent means? Well, Advent is a word that means coming. It refers to our Lord's arrival. When we talk about the first Advent of Jesus, we're talking about when our Lord Jesus came to this earth in his incarnation to be born of the Virgin Mary in Bethlehem. And when we talk about the second Advent of Jesus... We're talking about a future time when the Lord Jesus Christ, who went back into heaven after his resurrection, will come again to this earth from heaven, not as a baby, 
but rather in great power and glory in the clouds of heaven. The second coming of our Lord will be not an obscure or secretive coming, as was his first uh, advent, but it will be an arrival, a coming that all of the universe will know of. So right now, brothers and sisters, we find ourselves living in a period of redemptive history between our Lord's first advent, which took place 2,000 years ago, and his future glorious second advent, which is yet to come. In our passage for this Lord's Day morning, the prophet Isaiah writes about this present period of redemptive history in which we find ourselves living. This age between the ages, this period of time between our Lord's first advent and his future second advent. And as I will hope to demonstrate, this prophecy of Isaiah that we're considering this morning is a prediction about the messianic age, this present messianic age, this present age of redemptive history that was ushered in by the first advent of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. A prediction that reveals God's gracious plan to gather the nations into his kingdom through the missionary labors of Christ's church, and which gives us as God's people hope and confidence in the present as we look forward to our Lord's future return. The Reverend James G. Kirk, in his book, Meditations for Advent and Christmas, introduces our passage as follows, and I quote, he says, Isaiah's vision is of the time when the mountain of the Lord shall be established. The nations shall flow to it as people seek to learn God's ways. The law of the Lord will judge all nations fairly. It will be a time when weapons are reforged into instruments for cultivating the land. Indeed, a glorious description, right? of a time of peace. But that description that we find here in this prophecy of Isaiah, does it not sound quite different from the world in which we now live? A world where news of violence, war, terrorism, injustice, oppression, and other social upheavals continue to dominate the news cycle? Especially nowadays, and yes, we pray for for the situation in Ukraine, we, we know that uh, this brutal war between Russia and Ukraine has already claimed thousands of lives. So where are the swords being reforged into plowshares in our present situation? How then are we to understand and interpret this passage of God's word? And how could this passage possibly be referring to this present new covenant age, given the fact that there are still so many wars and rumors of wars. These are some of the matters that we will be wrestling with as we consider our passage for today. But it's always important for us, whatever portion of Scripture we are considering, to put that passage in its proper context. And so we need to consider the context of our passage for today. Think about the prophet Isaiah. Who was Isaiah? Well, Isaiah was a great prophet of God who received his call to be a prophet probably sometime around 740 B.C. And he was probably martyred by the wicked and brutal Manasseh, king of Judah, sometime around 680 B.C. So Isaiah's prophetic ministry spanned many decades, and he prophesied under the reigns of many kings, numerous kings. Isaiah ministered in Judah during a period of time when God's people 
we're often unfaithful and compromising and giving in to the idolatrous ways of their Gentile neighbors and thus in need of being challenged and called to repentance. Isaiah's prophetic oracles often alternate between threats of judgment on the one hand and gracious promises of mercy on the other hand. We see in our passage for today a gracious promise of mercy, a promise of mercy that will apply to what a period of time that Isaiah describes as the last days. And that brings me to my first main point, if you're following along in your sermon outline. The first thing I want us to consider is the meaning and significance of the last days. And sometimes when uh, Christians from various church backgrounds get together and have conversations, one of the favorite topics of conversation among God's people seems to be prophecy, Bible prophecy. And oftentimes the question is raised, I wonder, are we in the last days? You ever been talking to a brother or sister in Christ and, and that topic comes up, you know, boy, we must be in the last days. Look at the news. Look at all that's going on in the world. Well, what does Isaiah mean when he speaks of the last days? Well, let's dive in. In verses 1 and 2, it says this. The word which Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. That gives us the setting. This is a word, a revelation from God that Isaiah has received as a prophet of God. He receives direct revelation uh, from God. And he says, now it will come about that in the last days, some translations say in the latter days, the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains and will be raised above the hills and all the nations will stream to it. The last days. This terminology of the last days, this is what the theologians call an eschatological term or eschatological terminology. This prophecy has eschatological significance, meaning that it points us forward to the outworking of God's plan in redemptive history. Verse 1 tells us that Isaiah saw the word, the word which Isaiah the son of Amos saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. That language of word and of saw, this is the language of divine revelation. Perhaps God revealed this Word, this prophecy to Isaiah by means of a vision. God often communicated his direct revelation to his prophets by means of things such as visions and so forth. And what is the content of this particular vision? Well, it's interesting. Before we dive into the details of this passage, I want you to turn to another prophet of the Old Testament, a prophet who was a contemporary, a younger contemporary of the prophet Isaiah, namely Micah. Turn to Micah chapter 4, and let me read verses 1 through 5 of Micah chapter 4. Micah is after the book of Obadiah, or after the book of Jonah. Micah chapter 4. Verses 1 through 5. And see if these words don't sound familiar to you. And it will come about in the last days that the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains. It will be raised above the hills and the peoples will stream to it. Many nations will come and say, come and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord and to the house of the God of Jacob, 
that he may teach us about his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For from Zion will go forth the law, even the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And he will judge between many peoples and render decisions for mighty distant nations. Then they will hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation, and never again will they train for war. Each of them will sit under his vine and under his fig tree with no one to make them afraid, for the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. Though all the people walk each in the name of his God, as for us, we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. Does that sound familiar? Well, it should, because it's almost verbatim the same as the prophecy recorded here in Isaiah chapter 2. prompting some scholars to speculate that perhaps Isaiah borrowed this from Micah or, or vice versa or what have you. Or perhaps both Micah and Isaiah were borrowing from a, a, uh, a prophetic tradition that was already out there and was shared by the prophets of the Lord. But whether this saying was original with Isaiah or not, the Holy Spirit inspired Isaiah to use these words to his own purposes to take these words upon himself and to communicate them as a word from the Lord to the people. No damage to divine inspiration is, is provided if Isaiah happens to have borrowed this from Micah or from elsewhere. But the Lord, the Lord, this word did come to the Lord, we are told, and Isaiah communicates it to us. He says, it will come about that in the last days or latter days. What does this terminology of last days or latter days refer to? Well, as you may have guessed, there are many different interpretations out there in the Christian world. For example, our dispensational friends view this prophecy as, and this terminology as describing conditions that will take place during a future millennial kingdom, an earthly, earthly millennial kingdom when Christ is expected to return to earth and to rule from Jerusalem uh, over a renewed, a, a renewed uh, Israelite theocracy until the time of the final judgment and the consummation and so forth. Still others see this, seem to view this passage in Isaiah chapter 2 as, as a prophecy describing the eternal state. The last days, according to this view, uh, are the ultimate last days of the new heavens and the new earth wherein righteousness dwells. But others, and I would include myself in this category, others view this as a description of this present New Covenant Messianic age, this period of history between our Lord's first and second advents. When Isaiah speaks of the last days, well, brothers and sisters, I will show you in a few minutes that the New Testament says that we are in the last days. Indeed, we have been in the last days ever since Jesus uh, came to this earth died for our sins, rose from the dead, ascended into heaven, and has poured out the Spirit upon the church. One of the great scholars of our church, uh, uh, who has uh, supported and uh, advocates this view, is Dr. E.J. Young. Dr. Young had written a a massive three-volume commentary on uh, the uh, prophet Isaiah, on the book of Isaiah. And Dr. Young says the following about this particular period for this particular prophecy. He says, quote, the period which is intended by the phrase, quote, the last days is the age of the Christian church, which began its course with the first advent of Christ. It is true that from the Old Testament alone, so much is not apparent, 
But in the Old Testament, the phrase does signify the age or time of the Messiah, the period of deliverance and salvation. He goes on to say Isaiah takes the figures which were the property of the Old Testament economy and makes them the vehicles of expression for the truths of salvation and blessing, which were the characteristics of the age of grace. And, you know, as we compare scripture with scripture, we find this kind of language about the last days or the latter days or the last hour. We find this kind of language prominent in the New Testament as well. One of the places we find that language is in the passage that I read for you earlier in the service from the book of Hebrews. If you go back to Hebrews chapter 1, let me once again read Hebrews 1, verses 1 and 2. Hebrews 1, 1 and 2, we read these words. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers, that would be the patriarchs, Moses, the prophets, and so forth. After he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets, in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and so forth. Now notice there's a contrast In verse 1, he speaks about an age that he describes as long ago. The age when God spoke by God-appointed prophets. But then he contrasts the age of long ago to, in verse 2, to these last days. In these last days, God has spoken to us in or by his Son. Now let me ask you folks, when do you think... The epistle to the Hebrews was written. What century was this epistle written in? It was written in the first century. Here the author of Hebrews, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, here he describes the situation that existed even in the first century, the century in which he was writing, as these last days. So if any brother or sister asks you, do you think we're in the last days, point them to Hebrews 1 verse 2 and say, yes, We've been in the last days since Jesus came to this earth in his first advent. Or consider 1 John chapter 2, verse 18. 1 John chapter 2, verse 18. John doesn't just speak of the last days or latter days. He actually speaks of the last hour. In 1 John chapter 2, verse 18, John writes, Children, it is the last hour. And just as you heard that Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have appeared. From this we know that it is the last hour. Again, when did the Apostle John pen this first epistle? Which century did he write in? Obviously, he wrote in the first century. And he describes the time in which he was living, not just as the last or latter days, but as the last hour. Brothers and sisters in Christ, what that means is that this is the last period of time before the final consummation of Christ's kingdom. And that leads me to consider also the significance of the last days. We're told in verse 2, now it will come about that in the last days, the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains. Now, what does Isaiah mean when he refers to the mountain of the house of the Lord. Well, in the ancient world, as I've pointed out on numerous occasions in my preaching in your midst, in the ancient world, the gods were often worshipped on mountains. Mountains were an appropriate symbol of transcendence and majesty. 
and so forth. And obviously, uh, and I've also made the case in the past that I believe that the Garden of Eden was actually a mountainous region. It was the original temple garden of the Lord from which flowed uh, the streams, the, the waters, that, the rivers that watered the area around the Garden of Eden. But the mountain of the house of the Lord that Isaiah is referring to here is the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. And what was the significance of that mountain? That was where the temple was. And what was the significance of the temple? The temple was a symbol of God's gracious dwelling in the midst of his people. In the temple was the Ark of the Covenant, symbolizing God's throne, his reign over, and presence in the midst of his people. But of course, when we study the scriptures and what the scriptures teach us about the significance of the temple, the Bible points us to the fact that Jesus Christ himself is the living temple. And we are living stones in union with Christ. We are living stones that make up that living temple. Christ, the living temple, ultimately fulfills this temple imagery here in the prophet Isaiah. So Isaiah is here using Old Covenant language to describe the New Covenant realities that will come about in the last days. The New Covenant realities that are fulfilled in Jesus Christ and in his church. So in speaking of the mountain of the house of the Lord, brothers and sisters, I I would argue that Isaiah is prophesying by that language, that Old Covenant language. He's talking about... Jesus and the gospel of the kingdom that Jesus brings with his incarnation. He says the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains and will be raised above the hills. And this is significant, the last last line of verse 2, and all the nations will stream to it. All the nations will stream to it. What does this speak to? This speaks of the ingathering of the Gentiles. This speaks of the Great Commission. This speaks of the gospel going out into the world and sinners from every tribe and tongue and people and nation being brought to saving faith in the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. The Gentile nations are pictured as flowing into the Temple Mount to learn the ways of Yahweh, who is described in verse 3 as the God of Jacob. It says in verse 3, And many peoples will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us concerning his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. Again, this is Old Testament language being used to picture new covenant realities. For the ingathering of the Gentiles into Christ's church and kingdom, that was only made possible by the first advent of our Lord and by the missionary and evangelistic labors of Christ's true, visible church. And so here we are, uh, 2,000 years out from the coming of Christ, and the gospel has spread throughout the world. And there are believers in almost every corner of the planet today. Yes, there there are people groups and there are parts of the world that are closed off to the gospel. We need to pray that God in sovereign mercy would open up those closed Uh, people groups in those closed areas, we must pray that God would open up a door for the gospel of Jesus Christ to spread amongst the unreached peoples of the world, for there are still unreached people to be reached for the gospel. But nevertheless, throughout the world today, there are millions upon millions of folk who confess Jesus Christ as Son of God, Savior, Messiah, and Lord, and who 
uh, profess worship and allegiance to him. And that is in fulfillment of this particular prophecy. Beloved, here we see a picture of Gentiles whose hearts have been regenerated and converted. The evidence of that new birth, the evidence of that conversion being a teachable spirit, a spirit that is willing to learn and follow the ways of the Lord. So for what do these nations, these peoples who stream into the mountain of the Lord, what is it that they say? Why do they want to go to the mountain of the house of the Lord? Verse 3 again, come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, so that he can make us healthy and wealthy and give us prosperity. No, that he may teach us concerning his ways. Do you desire to be taught the ways of the Lord? And that we may walk in his path. They want to learn his ways so that they might walk in his paths. That means walking in in faith and obedience unto him. For the law will go forth from Zion. Zion is where the Temple Mount was, where the temple was located. But again, that is all that Zion imagery, the mountain of the house of the Lord imagery is all fulfilled in Christ, the living temple, our Savior and great high priest. And the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Your listener Does this language describe your spiritual state, your current spiritual state? Is your heart truly teachable, truly eager to know the ways of the Lord? Do you hunger to know God's word and to walk in his ways out of gratitude for his gift of salvation? If not, may God, the Holy Spirit, convict you of sin, humble your heart and bring you to faith in Christ and know that God, through the gospel, calls you to repent of your sin and to believe upon Christ and Christ alone. For Christ was crucified for sinners just like you and raised from the dead so that whoever believes in him might not perish but have everlasting life. And so, beloved, we've considered the significance and the meaning of the terminology of the last or latter days. But next, I want you to notice as we move on to verse 4, consider the peace of the Messianic age. And, and this is where so many have trouble uh, viewing this as a description of this present age of redemptive history. Verse 4, it says, And he will judge between the nations and will render decisions for many peoples. And they will hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation and never again Will they learn war? Oh, that we could live in a world without war. Would that not be a blessed thing? But how are we to understand this passage? Well, friends, here the last day's age, the last or latter day's age, ushered in by the Messiah, is idealized as a time of universal peace among the nations. It is pictured as a time when weapons of war and violence, namely things such as swords and spears, are to be refashioned into peaceful domestic instruments, things like plowshares and pruning hooks. Again, it is precisely here that many Christians have trouble believing that this passage is a description of this present age, since there are still so many wars and rumors of wars in our world today. Some believe that this verse... Uh, refers to and predicts a future golden age for the church, a time before the return of Christ 
when the nations of the world will be converted as a whole and Christianized, not through political action or military action or cultural uh, endeavors or what have you, but through the missionary labors of the church, through the power of the gospel and a great outpouring of the Holy Spirit upon the nations. And this is one possible way to understand this passage. This is the view known as the post-millennial view. It was a view held by many of our Puritan forefathers. It was also a view that was held by some of the prominent Princeton theologians like B.B. Warfield and Charles Hodge and A.A. Hodge and so forth. It's a view that is attractive, and yet, uh, I don't know about you brothers and sisters, I'm not fully convinced of it, because I think that it does not take into consideration other biblical data. And so I, I, I tend to think that Dr. Young, since I've been quoting from E.J. Young, I think he offers a wiser, more biblically sound and consistent perspective when he writes the following. He says, even at the present day, insofar as men believe the gospel and seek to practice it in their lives, this prophecy finds fulfillment. At the same time, it must be remembered that sin is still present. And it will not be until the complete removal of sin at the second advent of the Lord that this prophecy will be realized in its completeness. In other words, uh, he's arguing for what the theologians call an already, not yet, uh, aspect to this prophecy. Yes, in principle and in Christ, we are already at peace. But in reality, in, in terms of the outworking of that, there is still a lot of war. Only when Christ returns will what will the reality in the situation in principle become a visible reality. Again, friends, it would seem that in verse 4, Isaiah is using this idealized language of international peace to point to a deeper spiritual reality. And that spiritual reality is the union of Jew and Gentile who believe in the Messiah in the one covenant people of God. This is not, as our dispensational brothers and sisters sometimes accuse us of, this is not, quote, replacement theology. This is what might be better described as expansion theology. The true church of Jesus Christ, the true Israel of God, the church does not replace Israel. The church is the Israel of God, expanded to include the Gentiles. In the Old Covenant, under the Old Covenant, the church was confined to a national theocracy. But now the church of Jesus Christ is an international reality, inclusive of Jew and Gentile, who profess faith in Jesus as the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of the living God, the Savior of sinners. And so, uh, by his incarnation and saving work, Jesus Christ has already, in principle, secured this spiritual peace of which Isaiah prophesies. We see that brought out by the Apostle Paul in his wonderful epistle uh, to the Ephesians. If you look with me at Ephesians chapter 2, and let me just read a few verses from, uh, let me start at verse uh, 11 and read through verse 19 of Ephesians chapter 2. And in this passage, Paul is addressing Gentile Christians in particular. And he says this, he says, therefore, remember that formerly you... The Gentiles in the flesh who are called, quote, uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands. Remember that you were at that time, at that time before the coming of Christ, before 
before you came to faith in Christ, you were at that time excluded from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off, that would be the Gentiles, have been brought near. And how have the Gentiles been brought near and incorporated into the covenant people of God by the blood of Christ, by his substitutionary atonement. And notice verse 14. For he himself is our peace. This is the peace that Isaiah 2 verse 4, I believe, is speaking of. Christ himself is our peace, who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing what? Peace. And might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross, by it having put to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who were far away, that would be again the Gentiles, and peace to those who were near, that would be the Jews. For through him, through Christ, we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. So then you, you Gentiles, you're no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household. You are now, even if you're a Gentile, if you believe in Jesus as the Messiah, you are a child of Abraham. You are in the Israel of God, the true church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Dear friends, our Lord Jesus, the Prince of Peace, said in Matthew 5, verse 9, in one of his Beatitudes, he says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. By the grace of God, let us strive as brothers and sisters in Christ, who in principle are already at peace with one another and peace with God, our Heavenly Father. Let us strive to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace as we are exhorted to in Ephesians 4. Verse 3. But what is the conclusion of all of this that we've considered, this great prophecy of the prophet Isaiah? Well, that brings me to my final point. Let us consider finally the moral imperative of these last or latter day promises. The moral imperative implied by these latter day promises. In verse 5, Isaiah, again writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, He says, come, house of Jacob, and let us what? Let us walk in the light of the Lord. The Bible talks about walking with the Lord or in the light of the Lord. And it's talking about living out the implications of your faith. Walking in faith and obedience. Since the Gentile nations will seek Yahweh and his word in the last or latter days, this messianic age, as we were told back in verses uh, 3 and 4, since that is the case, should not the professed covenant people of God among Isaiah's contemporaries, who are described here as the house of Jacob, should they not walk, meaning live, in faith and obedience to God's ways? Isaiah's contemporaries weren't walking in faith and obedience. They were walking in idolatry and unbelief. And so he calls them to walk in the light of the Lord, to walk in the light of the Lord is to walk under the guide of his Torah, his covenant instruction, by faith. And should not we, who are God's professed covenant people today in this messianic new covenant age, 
Should we not seek to walk the talk and live out the implications of the truth that we learn from God's word? That's, of course, a rhetorical question. The obvious answer is, of course we should. Yes, we should. Dear ones, the goal of learning the word of God is so that we may walk in his paths, as we are reminded in verse 3. Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us concerning his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. And that's very significant. The goal of learning sound doctrine, and we in the OPC, we love sound doctrine, and well, we should. Sound doctrine is important. Knowing your Bible is important. Knowing sound doctrine and theology is vitally, vitally important. But the goal of learning such subjects is not merely to stuff our heads full of Bible knowledge and theological truth. Remember that knowledge can puff up, but love builds up. The goal of doctrinal instruction is discipleship. And children, what is a disciple? A disciple is a student. If you are a disciple of Jesus, that means you have been enrolled in the school of Christ. And you've been enrolled in the school of Christ. Your baptism implies that, by the way. You've been summoned and enrolled into the school of Christ so that you may learn how to walk with Jesus in faith and repentance. The goal of doctrinal instruction is discipleship. The end goal of instruction in the ways of the Lord is obedient living unto the Lord. Learning Bible truth without living out what you learn, well, that will turn you into either a self-righteous Pharisee or a hypercritical, hypocritical, theological nitpicker. And sadly, we in the Reformed tradition have too many of those. One of the things I've noticed over the years of my ministry in the OPC, and I love the OPC and I love the Reformed faith, but I have periodically encountered individuals who, they love theology, they love to talk about the things of the Lord. They're really into theology. Hey, let's talk about supralapsarianism and infralapsarianism and all of that. And they get into all of the deep theological stuff. And I love that stuff too. I think that's wonderful stuff. But then they don't always live out the implications of their faith in their daily lives. Beloved, that's not the way it ought to be. Let us make learning sound doctrine a top priority in our lives and in the church. But let us also make sure that we are learning so that we might live out the implications of what we learn in faith and obedience. Let us echo what the people described here in verse 3 say. Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. In other words, let us go unto Jesus, the living temple, and his gospel and that we may, that he may teach us concerning his ways, and that we may what? Walk in his paths. May God give us the grace to respond to his word with, with such faith-filled obedience. Amen. Let us pray. Lord and Father in heaven, we do thank you and praise you that you have caused your kingdom to spread throughout the world. We thank you for the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for the Great Commission. We thank you that you are uh, spreading your word through your church throughout the world and drawing many sinners from every tribe and tongue and people and nation to faith in Christ and repentance unto life. We ask that you would grant us the grace, O Lord, to learn from your ways and to walk in obedience to your word. In Jesus' name we pray and all of God's people said, Amen.